welcome back to the Ladies Who London podcast, everybody. Hello. It's, <laughs> it's Alex here. I am back this week. Yay. Uh, with lovely Fiona again. Hello. <laughs> Hi, listeners. How are you all? I hope you're very well. Um, and a massive thanks to Fiona for um, filling in last week on her first solo episode. Yes. Yes. It's all fine. It's all fine. <laughs> no panics at all. It's all good. <laughs> How did you find it? Good, good. And really lovely to to have two fabulous guests and really interesting conversations with them. And yeah, yeah so it was it was lovely. Yeah. Good. Very- I'm, I'm so glad. And, um, and Fiona actually edited the podcast as well. So um, yeah, I handed all, all of that over to her <laughs> last week. <laughs> Um, but don't worry listeners I am not I'm not backing away from the podcast in any way shape or form but I do have a little bit of news I need to share um, to kind of explain why I've been a little bit uh, all over the place lately and some of you might notice that I've been a bit a bit absent from Instagram and all that kind of thing Um, well the week after Emily left the podcast in January uh, perfect timing Emily um, I was diagnosed with bowel cancer which was a very big shock for everyone uh, concerned, uh, not least me. Um, and so since then, uh, I have been dealing with uh, with all of that. And the reason Fiona was on her own last week is because uh, I was in hospital for 11 days having my cancer removed. Um, so, yeah, it's been quite a quite a start to the year. Um, and so I'm very, very thankful that Fiona, you popped up and, <laughs> and kind of came in and went, can I? part of it because I was at that point I was thinking panic 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 what am I going to do when I'm not um not not sort of functioning um but I am I'm out I'm home it was um a a very big surgery and uh, very quite traumatic and quite stressful um but we're through it and I'm recuperating at home which is another reason why I'm in Hampshire with my parents and have been for a little while and not in London so so hopefully all of these things that um I've been mentioning in the in the podcast in the last couple of months are starting to make a bit more sense. Why I'm not in London, why I've been a bit all over the place um, and why I wasn't here last week. So, um, yeah, where we are at the minute is that um, they think that they've got all the cancer, which is great. Um, and I'm just waiting to hear if I need chemotherapy, which is likely, but we don't know yet. Um, so it might be that this year I am in and out a little bit while I have treatment, because at the moment, I know some of you out there have probably been through similar things, um, but obviously chemo can be quite uh, quite a lot to take. So it might be that there will be weeks that I won't be uh, won't be present, and it will be over to Fiona. Um, but I am okay. I am I'm through <laughs> the major bit of it, hopefully. <laughs> And right. uh, can I reassure you folks that Alex is is smiling and yeah. <laughs> and looking as relaxed and smiley as as normal and um I'm I'm much relieved to see you back and have you back as well but yes, uh, yes. thank you Yes, I wasn't for a little while. I have to say, I was um, I was very much not my uh, my usual chirpy self while I was in hospital. Um, but I am, yeah, I'm on the mend. Still very, very sore and um, stitched up like a like a chicken. Uh, <laughs> feel a bit like Frankenstein's monster. I've got a, I'm sporting a, a pretty epic scar all the way down my front um, and a few other scars <laughs> beyond. So I do look a bit like Frankenstein's monster, um, and I'm missing a whole a whole chunk of stuff from inside. Um, but yeah, so I, I I haven't told you guys up until now because I. I wasn't quite sure how to deal with it. And, and Fiona and I have chatted quite a lot in the last few weeks about whether or not I mention it on the podcast. Um, and I went into the surgery, as I as I told you, Fee, didn't I, of, of going, oh, I'll be groggy for a day and then I'll be back and fighting fit and I had no concept of just how um, all-encompassing it was going to be. So, yeah, I had my surgery two and a half weeks ago, so I'm still very much in the recovery stage um, and still very kind of not quite able to work yet and and still quite tired but feeling you know a lot lot better um but yeah I am I'm getting there so yeah I wasn't sure wh- whether to tell everyone and then I, it kind of felt didn't it Fiona we keep talking about it and I, I said to Fiona today I said right well because I keep thinking about it I think it's it's right to tell everyone and also you deserve to know if I'm going to be a little bit here there and everywhere um what's going on um but there we go so yeah it's my news yeah <laughs> What's your news, Fiona? <laughs> well, you know, might have gone to Wales for Easter, didn't go to Wales in the air. I mean, it's it's really not a big... It, it doesn't compare. <laughs> That's dramatic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've got, we've got a, a steel beam delivered oh, for exciting. our building works, which yep. is... You know, it's it's sitting on the floor at the moment, but that's fine. It's, That's fine. You know, so there's stuff going on, which is yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. Good. 
Yeah, so both Fiona and I are not living in our homes <laughs> because they're being renovated. Um, yes, you, yes, yeah. It's yeah. a thing with the podcast, isn't it? <laughs> I was going to say I don't know what you know what the rest of the year has in store, but like the it feels like the last six months for you has been a bit you know of a whirlwind for for various reasons. Yeah. So fingers crossed. Whatever happens next is kind of just karma. Car- just just karma. Yeah, or just karma. Just, just slightly better. Yeah, That'd be really good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, gang, I, I kind of one of the reasons I wanted to tell you is just because I, I was saying to Fiona as well. I think that the more people talk about things like this, the better they are. Um, the more people talk about them, the less stigma there is about. I mean, I'm 41, right? I was never expecting to have uh, a diagnosis of bowel cancer. I went in for having had a, you know, a tummy that had been a bit grumpy for a little while. I wasn't flagging on anything and uh, yeah, it was all a bit of a shock. So the moral of the story is if you've got any concerns out there at all, get yourself checked out, um, get it caught early. And, and it um, has been pretty quick, actually. I mean, yeah. it, you know, it feels like a whirlwind for you, mm. but, but that's good. Um, yeah. It feels like a whirlwind. And it also feels like a long, long time. Cause like I said, it was the week after Emily left. So it was the end of January and what are we 10th of April um, recording? Uh, so it's Monday. Three... So it's, Three months-ish. Yeah, Feb, March, two, two and a half, really. Yeah. Um, From where to go. And sometimes it has really felt long, like we've been waiting for the consultant to call or waiting for a surgery date or waiting for, you know, this, that, and the other, lots of blood tests and biopsies and all this kind of thing. Um, But in, in reality, it has been incredibly swift. And I have to say, um, NHS, yes. uh, uh, I mean, goodness. Thank goodness. Incredible. Absolutely incredible that the care I've had has been outstanding um my surgeon I, i'm was in basingstoke hospital which is um the closest one to my parents which is known as a center of excellence for cancer particularly bowel cancer apparently and they have just been incredible my 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 surgeon was amazing the nurses were out of this world um they they dealt with a lot of stuff i was i was uh, very much <laughs> not very well for for a while they had a few complications and things and they dealt with it just incredibly so i mean i will never stop being thankful for the nhs and um, um it's times like this where you stop and think and you think, well, what if you were going through all of that and worrying about where to find the money to pay yeah. for it? And oh, yeah. Like, I mean, just yeah. um, sort of. Um, if we didn't have free healthcare, I would be bankrupt. Or, or either that or I wouldn't have had surgery and I'd be on my way out. So, yeah. Um, all the love for the NHS. Yes. But nevertheless so, so. <laughs> that's, that's out of the way um and i, I won't be you know, this is not going to turn into a cancer podcast so don't worry uh, there's plenty of those out there um we probably won't mention it again um unless you know it needs addressing but um this week because we've had quite a few lovely weeks which is another reason why we've had so many guests on as well to kind of take the um the strain a little bit of of um the podcast and we are going to keep continue having lovely guests on because they i think we can agree they've they've all been fantastic and we are going to keep doing a lot of that but this week we're kind of going back to our roots aren't we we're going to be talking doing a a just just a me and you podcast a chit chat one which has been a while um um do we have any um parish notices or, or shout outs that we need to do we um a few yes this week is the week when our lovely listeners have been to historic places with their children Yes. and impressed their children <laughs> and the volunteers at the place so so um stephanie stephanie went to the crossbones cemetery uh, the graveyard um with her i'm going to say daughter i'm just thinking the photos trying to guess no i'm not going to guess quite young daughter so she did say yep. she did um she wasn't too precise on all the details of the people who Good were plan, stephanie yeah in the uh, in the graveyard um but uh, yes, impressed the volunteers with her with her knowledge about that, um, and was also recommending a, a YouTube uh, episode. Sue Black, who has done some work with one of the cross skeletons from the from Crossbones, um, so a very interesting episode. Um, although actually, Stephanie, you haven't you haven't said so. I don't know. Maybe maybe we've looked Sue Black on YouTube. That's, yeah, we'll have a little rummage. Yes, we'll we'll have a look. look up for Sue that. Black and see what see what pops up. Well, well done, Stephanie. Well done for uh, for for heading there and and using your uh, using all the knowledge. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> Laura um, went to Hampton Court. Did oh, brill! The Bunny Trail, amazing, and scored many many answers very quickly. Very um, very knowledgeable due to all of the uh, the the story uh, <laughs> that she's heard from from you and Emily. Um, only to be slightly foiled by her six year old, who then said. 
did you learn it from the lady podcast mummy <laughs> i'm very impressed with our six-year-old uh listener who, well done who paying attention as well <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much. We haven't got a name for uh, for your son, but uh, thank you very much for, uh, for for listening as well. I wonder what's what's the age range of our listeners. I don't know. I don't know. I'd love I to know. He's he's our youngest, youngest Maybe. recorded so far. Youngest recorded say. six. So, so if any of you can beat six years old, we, we um, want to hear from you. We do. We do. Um, and then uh, we've had a, a message from Ben Damarell, who's been who's a long time listener. Um, and Ben went to, I don't know if he actually went, Ben, or you just took uh, pictures of a, a bar called The Green Note. And there is, it's a it's a musical bar, musical cafe. And on the board outside, it said live tonight, 40 Elephant Gang. Now, Yay. whether or not these are the remnants of the 40 <laughs> Elephants who've decided to basically create some kind of rock group or whether it is uh, a, a group who've called themselves the 40 Elephants, I don't know. And Ben, if you know, and if you listened, if you actually went in and heard the gang, let us know. Um I rather like that. Had somebody yeah. actually someone um messaged me a little while ago, a couple of weeks ago, and apologies. Um, I've completely forgotten who it was. It was in the middle of surgery and all that sort of stuff, saying that apparently there is a film in the works of the 40 elephants. Ah. Which is rather that, exciting. I mean, that, that makes perfect sense in in the kind of light of Peaky Blinders and Yeah. I'm genuinely thinking yeah. now though that commissioning editors are listening to our podcast and picking out topics. <laughs> that looks like a good one because so many of the things that we've done have, have then come into films or or shows. So um, I mean I'm just gonna call it. we we are we yeah. are um, groundbreakers. Why not? Trendsetting. Do you know now, 40 Elephants was one that I around the t- just before you did it, I was putting together a virtual tour about London in the 30s. Ah. Or, or interwar, actually. So it was covering quite it was covering the First World War. And up to 1939 or something, and I was like, I got at the end, and I was like, I really want to get them in. I want to get the the 40 elephants <laughs> in. How do I? How can I squeeze? Them? And they just, I just couldn't. I couldn't <laughs> squeeze them in. So I left them out. And then the next week, you did a whole episode about them, and I was like, Oh, <laughs> oh, fabulous! Oh, yeah. Next time, next time, you can do an entire next time entire walk all about them. That'd be so fantastic, actually, to do a walk uh, based around their their hood. Um and. There was something else. Oh, it's just gone out of my brain. Um, oh yes, you mentioned that that we um we feature in in an exam. Yes. yes. So I've, I've listeners, I've mentioned to you before that Fiona is not just a fabulous guide, but she tutors the Westminster uh, badged guides. And you said we've popped up as a source material. Well, <laughs> which exactly is horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> so uh so yeah one of uh one of the students was doing uh women of westminster mm-hmm. nice walk around Covent garden westminster st james's and things and sure enough got to the uh got to the the kind of source materials for ada lovelace and there it was women oh. ladies of london and then uh who else was there there was uh mary seacole florence nightingale and then there was about four stops where oh and nora nat khan brilliant uh, she did so yeah good and and yeah, well, I, I shouldn't pass? say that. I have, I haven't. We haven't given the marks back yet. Okay, fine. Okay, just, just winkle, winkle. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, we'll find out about that in a few weeks, there, listeners. <laughs> Lovely. Well, this week, um, it's quite interesting because I have, as you, as you know, a very long list of stuff that I want to talk about. And every time I look down my list, and I mean, it's probably, it's probably about 60 topics on there. Um, every time I look down it, I'm paralysed with indecision. And then one of our lovely listeners, Amanda Rock, uh, messaged us and said, um, since you're taking down suggestions for topics, I have one to add. I've been reading London, the Biography by Peter Ackroyd. Highly recommend, by the way. Fantastic book. Great stuff about London. Uh, and I came across Moll Cutpurse, born Mary Frith. Can you do an episode on her or part of one, perhaps? And she has been on my list for some time. And so when Fiona told me that you'd emailed Amanda, I thought, now is the time. So listeners, sit back and enjoy the story of Moll Cutpurse or Mary Frith. So Fiona, do you know anything about her for starters? I'm delighted that she's on your list already and that you know about her because I know nothing. You know nothing? Nothing. Okay. Well, I have to say, I knew 
uh, you know, a fair bit about her because I think, oh, I can't remember one of my walks I've covered her before and all this sort of stuff. But the more you look into her, the more interesting she becomes. So we are rewinding to um, essentially, well, the crossover between Tudor and Stuart London. So okay. this is this is a time, I mean, it's a time of characters, isn't it? Let's face it. If you think about the people in London at the time, there are lots of, of characters doing all sorts of crazy stuff. There's there's rogues and, and uh, cheeky people get, you know, doing all sorts of <laughs> nefarious things. And they often pop up in Shakespeare. You know, he, he talks about this a lot. This is exactly Shakespeare's era. Um, and he, he in, introduces quite a lot of these um, unusual people. And um, if, if there's one area of London that was known for criminality and, you know, kind of roguish underworld type people, um, where would, well, I don't know if you know, actually, where, where they might have gathered, where one of their meeting spots might have been. And I'll give you a clue. It's um, a very, very important place in London. Do you have any idea? So the first thing that sprang to my mind was Alsatia, as in... Oh the end of the Strand, the kind of edge between the city of Westminster, the city of London, that kind of border territory. There was a lot around there, but I'm thinking actually of a particular Ooh. site in the city of London. Ah, okay. <laughs> um, I've confused her now. <laughs> I'm thinking of sites in the city of London. None of them are springing immediately to... Well, I'll tell you, it's the biggest one. It's St Paul's Cathedral. Ah, okay. This is Fair where... Enough. The 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 criminals the, the the let's just call them the naughty folk, which I think is wildly you know mild for them. Um, used yeah. to hang around a lot by St Paul's Cathedral, and there's there's quite a good reason for this because of course St Paul's Cathedral has been for a long time a place of pilgrimage. So loads and loads of people would come in from uh, outside London. They would come to St Paul's Cathedral, um, hoping to you know kind of on pilgrimage to pray, all that sort of thing, and um. So they are a natural source of, well, wealth of, of wealth. basically they're, they're, they're marks. They are natural marks. And duping all of these very innocent country folk was known as coney catching. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. And things that, that, that um, all of these thieves and everything used to get up to was stuff like cutting purses. So um, yeah. it was known as nipping a bung. That's what they called it. <laughs> <laughs> so you would either cut, cut the bottom of the purse or you'd cut the so a, a purse and we think about it now it's not quite the same as as is today where you have a purse that you put your money in you put it in your bag and whatever your purse would literally be kind of a pocket that would be on a string over your shoulders um usually underneath I, your overcoat yeah not necessarily it depends on you know how much you wanted to sort of flaunt i guess it might be one of those examples as well where american english is closer to the old usage because isn't yeah. in America a purse is a bag, isn't it? Rather than yeah. a, like a wallet, like we would. Yeah, use that's it very as, true. So. Yeah, so it's sort of this little pocket, and so you can either cut the bottom of it, and the coins would fall out, or more better really because it's not going to create such a clatter would be to cut the strings or one of the strings and whip it off that way so it was known as nipping a bung and they could also do these tricks where they would drop coins and then the person would be like oh oh and pick up Ooh. the coins and actually they'd be counterfeit coins and meanwhile someone else is you know getting into yeah. their pocket on the other side and and there was all kind of like betting scams and confidence tricks um and some people very simply just went for the very obvious one of you know whacking you over a head with something quite heavy or <laughs> chucking a, a knife into your guts or a or you know holding you up with a sword or something so you've got a variety of different ways that you could um uh could be um robbed. yeah robbed ripped off all that sort of thing so you know inventive so all of this is going on and into um well close by actually on in the area of the barbican um which is now mm -hmm. where there's this big estate uh in 1584 Probably 1584. The reports vary somewhere between 84 and 89, but but most place most sources say 84. Um, Mary Frith was born, and she was born to a, a pretty you know stand up family. Her, her mother was a housewife. Her father was a cobbler, mm -hmm. and um, she very early on. Uh, well, actually, she, she's become over, over time a bit of a sort of fable, a bit of a myth and a legend. And and uh, it's tricky to know how much of the information about her is 100% accurate because she her, her, a lot of the information has kind of been chopped apart and sensationalised a bit and sometimes altogether made up. So you have to kind of sift through a lot of the, the information and take some of it with a bit of a grain of salt. And and so that's what I've tried to do okay. uh, today. But so there she... might be bits that, that still, I'm telling you today, that may be a little bit overly made up. 
right. but we'll get a sense of her. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So she, she's sort of like a, a female Dick Turpin type figure. Well, sort of, sort of. Yeah. Okay. So she does kind of become this, this like, she's not quite the same. She does dabble. Well, we think she dabbles anyway in a bit of highway robbery right. later on. But so she's slightly different in terms of she's more of a thief. Um, but yeah, she becomes this slightly mythical thing. And there is also a, um, a famous... Um, journey on a horse a bit like dick turpin we'll come to oh, that okay so Sorry, she's born... jumping ahead i know i know <laughs> not very exciting um so she's jump but she, she's born to this um you know well not, not quite working class i'd say sort of upper working class family um who are pretty respectable and she is quite a humble background and so realistically her future is servitude so she's she will mm-hmm. be going into servitude the only way out of that is marriage um mm-hmm. And anyone who's done my Harlots tour, um, which I will be bringing back as soon as I'm ready to work again, uh, will know that there are, especially in the, in this era, 17, uh, 1700s is a little bit later, but then and, and earlier, you have kind of, as a poorer woman, you have two options. You go into servitude, so domestic servant, washerwoman, that kind of thing. You get married. And even then, getting married, if you're working class, you're still probably doing some kind of work. Or the other option is you go completely left field and you just try and make it on your own often in prostitution, um, but in this case, in thievery. And it very, very early on, her family, you know, are trying to bring her up to be respectable and, and go into this life. And very early on, she makes it very clear that she is not down for this at all. <laughs> she hangs around with the boys, particularly kind of some of the rougher boys in the area. She would go and watch the fights that they would have. She'd get into trouble. She'd start swearing as well. Mm. Um, and when they would sort of say, all right, you know, sit down, do some sewing, what she'd do is she'd kind of mess it up, chop it up and throw it away so that she could get back out on the streets and get back to, you know, watching the boys fight and all of that. So it's quite funny. Um, there's a few biographies that are written of her and most of them are after she's died. So this is what I mean about not quite yeah. being able to be super truthful at everything. But one of the biographers describes her as a very Tom rig or rump scuttle. Which I love both Ooh. of those words. <laughs> to be a rump scuttle who delighted and sported in boys play and pastime. Fair enough. It does come across throughout her entire story is that she does not seem romantically interested in anyone, men or women, anybody. She doesn't really see that's not her bag at all. So she's not hanging out with these boys for, you know, kind of boy girl excitement and activities. She is literally just going, I just, I I like, she's she's what we might call today a tomboy, which is a problematic term anyway. But, but yeah, so she's back then she's, this is really out of the, you know, the norm. And she first gets into trouble with the law in 1600. So probably around 15, 16 years of age uh, for stealing purses. So she goes in early, right? Okay. Yep. Um, and she is, uh, she's, she's sort of caught by the law for stealing two shillings. Now, right. if she had been doing this 150 years later, we've talked in the past about, um, well, we talked about the bloody code, didn't we? And um, yeah. how actually crimes were earlier were were dealt with a lot because I guess it was so much um, a lot more leniently and later on into the 1800s that theft of two shillings would have been enough to to get her hanged for grand larceny but at the time the law was a lot less severe and so her family were really unhappy with her sliding into crime so they did something quite sneaky Uh, they lured her down to the docks and they Uh tricked her on on board a ship bound for New England bound for the United States oh okay now, I've read a couple of different theories about this. One of the theories is that they um, they supposedly brought her down to watch a wrestling match. And I don't know why on board a ship it would be, but anyway. Um, and she came down with, with some money to bet on it. And then when the ship set sail, supposedly she then bought her way off the ship. Um, and right. To shore. So however, some some have it that she jumped overboard and swam. I think I suspect that maybe a pinch of salt with that sounds like quite dangerous um but somehow she basically as it was setting off managed to get off it and get back to shore she was not having any of that and then from that point on her family doesn't feature yeah i was gonna say if you're heading down the thames you've got a way before you get out of reach of the shore yeah so there's options there if there are options enterprising exactly so somehow she got herself back and then she she didn't really obviously her family were not not down with what she was up to (laughs) so she decided that she was going to 
essentially make make a, a living out of this. And she took up with a professional band of, of pickpockets. And this was a, a profession that quite a lot of young people engaged in. Uh, I guess it's one of the easier and quicker ways into crime. Um, and she was what was called a whipster. So she was one of the very skilled pickpockets who actually did the stealing. Uh-huh. Um, somebody else called the bulk would come in and distract the mark or the person they're stealing yeah. from. Um, and then while they're doing that, she's busy, you know, cutting the strings of the purse. Hence why her name becomes Cut Purse. Now, her name, she doesn't stick with Mary either. Her name becomes Moll Cut Purse. Now, there's a reason for this. Do you know anything about the name Moll? It seems like, I mean, it seems to crop up quite often. Mm. And there's, I suppose, in later times, there's like gangsters moles. Mm. Does that does that relate? Sort of. So the name Moll, well, it was sort of a nickname for Mary, but but a, a, a disreputable one. Yes. So a Moll was somebody who was a bit of, um, I guess, a bit of a rough and tumble woman, someone who often is involved in prostitution, not always. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes, particularly in the 1700s, if someone was called Moll, it was a pretty sure sign that she was involved either directly or tangentially to the sex trade. Yeah. Um, but essentially, Moll is somebody who she's a, a, oh, and, bit, yeah. a bit of a naughty one, a bit of a bad, yeah, a bad lass. Um, Molly houses as well. Yes, That's, exactly. Yes. Exactly. Um, yeah. She was also given the nickname of the Roaring Girl, which I love. <laughs> I mean, these, these fantastic <laughs> names that she's been given. I mean, honestly, I'd take them all as, as stage names. Um, the Roaring Girl. Now, this is a quite a particular thing. So there was a trope of boys who were young men of the sort of lower social classes who were very um quite violent quite aggressive and they riffed on so you had the the upper classes in their courtly style and um so these what they were called roaring boys would sort of dress in almost like comical versions of that okay but then also go around being unruly and criminal and so that this was a whole group of of young men who were referred to as the roaring boys but she, so it wasn't even a group. It was just a kind of a bit like, you know, you call the dandies. They're not a particular yeah. group, but there are a, a group of people who do the same thing. But she yeah, was yeah. the roaring girl. So already she is standing out quite a lot as being a girl who is very much aligned with these these boys who are aggressive and criminal. So this this the name for this mall is carrying some serious weight. Like this is, yeah. you know, she's quite a, quite an interesting person. She also starts performing. And she does these comedic musical performances in taverns. She would sing and dance and play her lute all without a license. Now, we're going back to our theatre licensing for a couple of weeks ago here. Um, women were banned from the public stage until the second half of the century, until the restoration, Charles II yeah. coming back on. So the fact that she is on stage uh, already is against social convention. Yeah. So she, I mean, she probably presumably couldn't have got a license. Well, exactly. She wouldn't have been able to. So she's doing this kind of illegally. Um, She gradually moved from taverns into playhouses. So she's sort of going up a bit in the world and she's Mm -hmm. becoming quite famous. One of the things she also did was smoked a pipe. Ooh. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Because that's, yes. That's that's big stuff. Because at the time it was against, again, social convention for a woman to smoke. A pipe. And she is referred to sometimes as the first female smoker of England. No. Now, whether that's true or not, who knows? But yeah. definitely, definitely the first, because I mean, Elizabeth the first had, had had been had given been given tobacco and apparently, you know, had a had a drag. It was like, oh, this is disgusting. Yeah, I um, don't like that. It did like it. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so so, so <laughs> Moll is the the first official female smoker of England. Something else that she does that that raises a lot of eyebrows is she starts cross-dressing. She, she presents as a man for a lot mm-hmm. of it. Um, she wears these, this doublet and these baggy breeches. And so she's also smoking her pipe. She's swearing like a trooper as well. We don't quite know why she dressed as a man, but it's probably to have enhanced her performances. Yeah. And and to make her quite famous, uh, possibly to make her thieving easier to do as well, because you can get into places much more unnoticed as a man than you could as a woman. Yes, although presumably, if you become a kind of recognisable person, doesn't that doesn't that impact your ability to? Yes, um... and you'll but you'll see later as the story goes on that she sort of goes away from frontline crime. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. So frontline a little bit like um, a bit, little bit like uh, was it uh, um, uh, what's her name? Is it Annie Diamond from the Forty Elephants? I remember her first name now. Um, and she she became so famous that she had to sort of well she went in Step almost back. as yeah well no she kept going in and <laughs> going oh follow her and then everyone else went around the back uh, okay yeah, yeah yeah um so yeah so she does become quite quite well known um and it's all through all of this so now dressing as a man is also a very dangerous thing to do because technically it is a crime 
at this point in time. Okay. It's usually not prosecuted as long as the person's not too public about it. However, Molly's very, very public about it <laughs> and amazingly gets away with it uh, most of the time. She's only chastised kind of once, really. So this is quite unusual that she's managed to, to get away with it, even though she's been really quite obvious about it. Um, and by 1610, she becomes very, very well known for her style of dress. And the reason we know that as a date is because in August of that year, there is an entry that's made in the stationer's register. Mm -hmm. um, now, this is the record of titles of works approved for publication by the Stationer's Guild. Um, we've talked a little bit about guilds in the last couple of weeks and it was called a book called the mad pranks of mary moll of the bankside with her walks in man's apparel and to what purpose <laughs> brilliant and it's written to by a guy purpose. To, to what purpose and it's, it's also, also it's written fantastically so the mad is m-a-double-d-e which is fantastic uh, okay and yeah pranks is p-r-a-n-c-k-e-s Oh, pranks. The muddy <laughs> prankers. <laughs> um, it's written by a guy called John Day in 1610. Uh, there's sadly no surviving copy of this text, however. It's a bit of a shame. Uh, it made her into a bit of a celebrity. And the, her manner of dress and how she speaks and all the swearing and everything is really challenging convention and the moral codes of the day. So it's quite an interesting thing. Um, and it all starts to catch the attention of the public and several writers. There's a, um, a publication, a sort of, um, a newspapery kind of thing called the Newgate Calendar. Mm -hmm. um, a Newgate being the very famous prison, often it, it dealt with, you know, people of ill repute and stuff like that. Yeah. A bit of a gossip rag, really. And it said in it, she was a great libertine. She lived too much in common to be enclosed in the limits of a private domestic life. So they get her, like they know yeah. what she's about. Um, so so is, do, oh, do we know, were, were people scandalised by her or they were just sort of commenting on her it seems like a bit of both okay yeah um they're definitely she does make quite a few enemies okay um as you would imagine you know being a being a bit of a thief and all of that but no she she does uh, there are people who yeah um very in fact there's a little story i'm going to tell you where there were sort of two sides to it some people are cheering her on and other people are actively trying to um get her arrested and pull her down in fact let, let well yeah. now this is um this is where we kind of we have that parallel a little bit with Dick Turpin, who did that very famous ride, didn't he, uh, across country. Um, there is a story and it does bizarrely appear in Love's Labour's Lost, Act One, Scene Two by William Shakespeare. Uh-huh. In fact, no, I don't know if it's the actual thing. It might be just the horse. But anyway, there was a guy called William Banks who was a showman and a horse trainer and he was brilliant at publicity. And he bet uh, Moll that she couldn't ride between the London boroughs of Charing Cross and Shoreditch on a famous performing horse that, belo that belonged to him or that he trained called Morocco um, uh -huh. whilst wearing male attire. So bear in mind, this means she's going to be sitting astride the horse and not side saddle. <gasps> yeah. This is, this is quite a big deal. Yeah, yeah. Um, and not only did she take this bet on, she was like, yeah, stuff this. I can do one better. She carried with her a banner and a trumpet. <laughs> <laughs> Give herself this sort of dramatic entry thing. And she said that, um, in her own words, she said that, oh, I kind of amused myself imagining that I was squiress to Dulcinea of T Toboso, whatever that is. But she's sort of imagining that she's this fabulous sort of aristocratic woman tarting through town on this horse. It's brilliant. And so she, she has to ride from Charing Cross to Shoreditch, which is probably three miles, maybe? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, she... So, so is, what's the like the bet that she wouldn't be able to do it because someone would stop her? Yeah, essentially. Presumably, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And she gets most of the way undiscovered until Bishopsgate. So she's she's pretty much nearly there. Mm -hmm. And then somebody spots her, an enemy of hers, and then calls the crowd. And the crowd start. Some of them are clamouring her for her to be pulled from the horse, and others are cheering her on. Yeah. And in her own words, this, and this is absolutely brilliant. Uh, so she gets to Bishop's Gate. She says, we're passing under the gate. A plaguey orange wench knew me. And no sooner let me pass her, but she cried out, Mom cut purse on horseback, which set the people that were passing by and the folks in their shops a hooting and hollowing as if they had been mad, winding their cries to this deep note. Come down, thou shame of women, or we will pull thee down. 
I knew not well what to do, but remembering a friend I had that kept a victualling house a little further, I spurred my horse on and recovered the place, but was hastily followed by the rabble, who never ceased cursing of me, the more sober of them laughing and merrily chatting of the adventure. So uh-huh. some are some are really enjoying the chase and others are yeah. really quite angry about it. Um, and so she she did. She she got to this her friend's victualling house or kind of, you know, pub type thing. Have them. Um, and so she essentially, she, she got most of the way there tootling along. And then when this crowd pitches up, she sort of slightly, um, unceremoniously has to kind of leg it on this horse. And then what she does is she goes, she manages to get out of there. She rides all the way back to Charing Cross and she collects her bet from, um, uh, from William Banks. So she did it, which is, which is pretty cool. And there's another play that is published about her in 1611. And this is one that we do still have. This is by Thomas Middleton and Thomas Decker. And they call this one, The Roaring Girl. There you go. Now this is this is suddenly sounding familiar. Ah, it's making sense to you. Yeah. So um, it was published. It had already been performed and it's uh, possibly one of the best known versions of um, of Moll. Um, it features Moll as, as a comedic kind of matchmaker. And it, the, the plot is basically there's a young man who um, is in love with with Moll or Mary Um she know he knows that she won't be accepted by his father, so tricks him into thinking that he plans to elope with Mole Cutpurse. Uh, Mole plays along, and the old man uh, is relieved enough to discover that he's he's been tricked by uh, by his son. Gives his blessing, and then so essentially, Mole and Mary are two different people. And Mole then basically oh, wow, goes, "I'm not going to marry. I'm never going to marry." Which is sort of what happens, not not quite, but we'll get there. And this play was performed at the Fortune Theatre, um, slightly to the north of London. Um, so it's kind of just to the west of Bunhill Fields, just down from Old Street. Mm-hmm. And it was such a hit that on a couple of occasions, uh, Moll came and performed what was known as an afterpiece. So okay. the show having finished, she then came on. She came on uh, onto stage. Um, and according to her, um, again, her um, review, she said I pl- she played upon her lute and sang a song, as well as making some other immodest and lascivious speeches. <laughs> again, all all whilst dressed as a man. Yeah. So she's defying convention by appearing on stage. And this, again, this is said, possibly, again, hard to prove, that this may be the very first time a woman appears on stage in an English theatre. Uh-huh. Again, yeah. tricky, tricky to prove, but yeah, you know, yeah. she, she's in amongst all of these. She's, yeah. she's breaking, breaking conventions here. Um, in April of that year, 1611, she is arrested and sent to Bridewell Correction House, which is usually for women uh, for a few months. Yeah. And it's probably as a result of that very performance because of the, of sort of the lascivious nature of everything that she was on. You can imagine her just getting up on stage and being all fruity and, and swearing and smoking and dressed in man's clo- men's clothes. It would have been amazing. Um, and then the following year, the performance of Afterpieces is banned throughout England. <laughs> and it's quoted as saying, the fortune is, is the site of lewd songs and dances, liable to attract cut purses and disturb the peace. So basically, they, she ruins it for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. And, and classically, the, yeah, the, the, the people who make the rules are reacting to the yes. things that have happened. Exactly. exactly. And then we go, make, back, but, we go back to the, 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 the licensing, licensing that you, again. you mentioned a few weeks ago. Um, this play, The Roaring Girl, was redone by the RSC in 2014 so it is a play that yeah. is still um it is still brought out in fact I think they had a whole season called the roaring girl so I don't know what else was in that but anyway um and so both of these works talk about her behavior the dressing in men's attire and they're not particularly favorable um although the one that we've got the roaring girl is well they say by by contemporary standards it's quite complimentary so but maybe not back then um and so what it, it talks about all of her qualities that are let's say it classes improper but -hmm. it also shows that she has some virtue so there's a section in the play where she attacks a male character because he uh, comes out and says oh all women are prostitutes and she attacks him and says that's not true and and kind of you know pushes back on that and also um she she did in the play she says she's never going to marry and this is uh this is chastity so this is a you know i think they they prize quite highly so actually there's a little bit of of you know of good and bad in there as well um, she's sent back in December to Bridewell again, uh, having been arrested in uh, St Paul's Cathedral, of all things, Okay. with, and I quote, her petticoat tucked up about her in the fashion of a man. Yeah. So goodness knows what's going on there. Um, and she is brought before the Bishop of London and she gives a confession and she says, yeah, 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 I did all of this. Um, and she says, oh, yeah, I flaunted male attire and I was blaspheming and swearing and I was drunk and I was keeping lewd company and 
hanging out with thieves and all this sort of thing. So, and they try, they actually tried to bang her up as being a prostitute as well. And she really pushed back against that. And okay. she denied charges. And they also said, oh, you've been encouraging women into the sex industry as well. And she said, no, no, absolutely not. Nothing to do with me. And she denied yeah. that. And they, they couldn't make that stick, quite interestingly. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that they, the reasons they said that is there was quite a lot of, um, if you look back at the the archives, of particularly the, the, sort of the church records um, of, women who were sex workers disguising themselves as men so that they could escape the authorities a bit a bit easier so the fact that she's uh, dressing as a man they sort of assume and okay. she very much goes absolutely not so you can take yeah. that straight off the table yeah. um and i mean we see this as well that the the um attitude to people cross-dressing with the story that we did of thomas bolton and frederick park which was quite a while ago which was one of my favorites actually uh these two men who used to dress as women and go to the theater uh, not in this era, a little bit later, but um, but still, there's often been quite a lot of yeah legal cases around people dressing not appropriate for their gender, as it was deemed, which is is quite interesting. So, yeah. and having been arrested in December and gone through this this trial, she then has to do penance at Saint Paul's Cross for yeah. evil living. Now, Saint Paul's Cross, you and I know quite well. It's part of our exam walk in the city of London. Yeah. Um, so do you want to explain? Do you want to? You, well, you're... so it's um, it's sort of just out the back of the modern St Paul's mm. in a way. And actually, if you walk through the gardens of St Paul's, weirdly today there is a big monument with a column with St Paul on the top, which yeah. is not where it was. <laughs> but the monument is is to a family, but also commemorates Paul's cross. Weirdly. Mm. Quite close by, there's a little octagon on the floor, which is actually the site of Paul's Cross, which was an outdoor pulpit. Yeah. So they did both preaching there and also, I think, a certain amount of announcing the news mm. and royal proclamations and things like that would be announced yeah. there. Um, and quite a lot of punishments as well, which is what we see, you know, public yeah. punishments. So, sort of, yeah. um, you know, dishonour and disgrace and all that that kind of thing. This is what we see for uh, for Moll is she's taken to St Paul's Cross and she has to stand covered in a white sheet while the Sunday morning sermon is going on. <laughs> now, I'm not sure that this had much of an effect. I mean, I think we could probably assume it didn't, given what we know about her. Um, there was a, a chap called John Chamberlain who was a, a bit of a sort of not quite a diarist but a sort of a, an observer of, of Elizabethan Jacobean uh, London and he wrote a letter uh, to a friend describing it and he he kind of describes it as if she's doing another performance and he says she wept bitterly and seemed very penitent but it's since doubted she was maudlin drunk being discovered to have been tippled off three quarts of sack sack is fortified <laughs> wine so basically he was like yeah she it seemed to all the world that she, you know she was penitent but actually she was she off was just based just based and just <laughs> performing again playing it up and clearly none of this has any effect on her at all in her own words um she says and this is such a great quote they might have soon as uh, they might as soon have shamed a black dog as me with any kind of such punishment for saving the reverence due to those who enjoyed it for half a penny i would have traveled to all the market towns in england with it and been as proud of it as that citizen who rode down to his friends in the livery gown and hood so she's thinking she's like this is this is a badge of honor yeah brilliant yeah and well, the other if thing is, if you, I was going to say, if you're if you're wearing the clothes and doing all the stuff, then and and performing on stage, yeah. you know, inevitably you're not going to be shamed by having a white sheet for an hour and a half. Around in white sheet, no. <laughs> fantastic. And also, one of the things that that really um, shows that she she was involved in this, she had she was branded on her hand four times, and this is oh, what happened okay. to thieves: is that you'd be branded yeah. on your hand, but usually you'd be branded once. Yeah, like one uh, one chance and then you're out. Exactly. Kind of. So um, what they'd have to do to get out of, of punishment is they would have to, I think, recite a, a, a passage of the Bible. Yeah, because that shows you're part of the church. Yes. And therefore judged by a different system. Exactly. And then you get so, branded and that's your kind of one, one strike and you're out. Yeah. So the fact that she's been branded four times hmm. means that she's got away with quite a bit. And we don't know why. And it might just very simply be that she was a woman doing this. Yeah. Who knows? We don't know. But yeah. four times to be branded is, is really quite something. Quite, Did, quite um, unusual. Yeah. Um, oh, no, I was just thinking, when when do the Old Bailey records start? Oh, well, now you're asking. In those? It's 16 something because it's surprising, but it might be just slightly later. Mm. Did the Old Bailey 
start somewhere other than where it is now? Yes. Uh, then I'm not sure. Yes, but the records, I was looking up for something else the other day, and they the records go back much longer than, anyway. Interesting. That's... But I mean, to be honest, it doesn't sound like she ever came up to the Old Bailey. It sounds like she was very much dealt with on, in kind of on a local level. Yeah. Well, some of the some of the cases there weren't super high powered hmm. in the early days. Might be worth a rummage. Yeah. So this is 1612 and she's kind of become quite famous by this point. So by 1614, she's moved away from frontline thieving right. <laughs> and she has a business. She's got an, a, a property on Fleet Street, on the north side of Fleet Street, and she is uh, brokering stolen goods. Okay. Now, this makes her quite an important person in uh, the local community because thieves would bring to her the stuff they'd nicked and she would buy it. Yeah. But also people who had been robbed would come to her to look for the stuff <laughs> that had been robbed from them and buy it back. And sometimes it's much easier and faster than taking someone through the courts. And especially if it was jewellery or objects that had particular sentimental value, not necessarily worth much, but, you know, that they really didn't Valuable want to, to you. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. What they would often do is they would go to Moll and they would say, look, this got stolen. I really want it back. And Moll, being so entrenched in the thieving community, would tootle out to try and find who took it, buy yeah. it off them and then would sell it back to the person. So she's kind of she's this really got this really clever niche business, yeah. essentially, in in stolen goods and helping out the people that have been thieved. For, I mean, it's really an interesting way it's to good. do. It's good. Yeah. And it's it. Um... There was someone else sort of more notable doing that later, but it, it, intriguing. I wonder whether whether she set the tone or whether it was a Maybe. thing that lots of people did. Maybe it, it probably was a thing yeah. that a fair few people did. Do you I know mean, who was it that did it later? Do you know? Well, um, what's his name? Jonathan Jonathan Wild, who's oh. kind of pre just precursor to the Bow Street Runner era. Yeah. So he's doing exactly. He was the he called himself the thief. Thief taker, thief, thief master general, or thief taker general of all England. Interesting. Um, well, uh, he's so on he, my list as well, so we might we might uh, have to well. go down. We don't do quite a lot of theory at the moment. I quite enjoy it. Um, <laughs> there's a couple of occasions. This doesn't, you know, this gets the better of her a little bit. There's one occasion. Um, Mole told this tale herself that uh, a gentleman came looking for a particular watch, and turned out that he was a police plant. And as soon as she returned it, she was arrested for handling handling stolen goods. But it didn't really seem to you know be too much of an issue because she had this business in this this house for quite a long time um one of she was brought up for trial for this one and one of her fellow pickpockets saved her from jail uh, by stealing the watch which was the key evidence <laughs> and so they, they couldn't bring it through the court so she was acquitted because there was no evidence to <laughs> that she'd stolen it so i mean don't mess with the pickpockets because they'll you know they've yeah. got each other's backs which is quite yeah, entertaining yeah. and and i love the way it's so kind of codified it seems like Ooh. like you were talking earlier on about the different nicknames for the people who do the different bits in yeah. the in the thieving but it seems like there was you know there were schools that you could go to to learn how to do it yes and, yeah well this is the 40 elephants yeah. again you know they they would train up the new generation of of thieves of women that were working for them in their gang and and absolutely if you want to know how to do it properly you, you go to someone and they'll you teach learn you from the best yeah, yeah. absolutely <laughs> um so alongside this she's also quite useful to the local authorities too because what they would do is that this is pre any sort of formal policing we haven't got the bow street runners yet yeah. which comes in the 1700s we haven't got any like, metropolitan police nothing like that so it's very much a local so when i say local authorities it's more i always refer to it a little bit like a protection racket you know groups of people yeah. who you'd sort of pay them a bit of money and they'd be like right well i'll, I'll look after this area, this group of people, whatever. So these local authorities would bring small-time criminals to her and she would interrogate them. And she knew quite a lot of the, the big-time thieves, so she was a very good person to do this. Okay. And her house, it sounds amazing. She covered it in mirrors. She's obviously uh -huh. very, very proud of, you know, how she dresses and what she looks like. She yeah. kept parrots and she bred mastiffs, these bull mastiff dogs, which, again, pretty, you know, menacing dogs. Her yeah, favourite yeah. was a huge one, and the name was brilliant. It was called Wild Brat. <laughs> Which, I mean, I'm thinking about getting a dog this year. Let let me tell you, that name is on the table. Wild brat. Um, and she was very partial to her dog. She they each had their own beds and sheets and blankets, and she prepared their food herself. She had three maids who worked in the house, but but she dealt with the dogs. That that was you okay. She's clearly making a lot of money. Um, yeah. She seems to have also had an excellent sense of humour. And I, the more I, I, you know, I look at her, the more I absolutely want to go to the pub with her. Um, she people would say that they'd, they'd pass by a house and you would just hear gales of laughter and, you know, brilliant, you know, just, just a lot of fun. Um, and th 
there's one story and again you know who knows if this is real or apocryphal but there was a prankster who decided to um, fill her pipe with gunpowder and she thought this was hysterical. She just, <laughs> she thought this was absolutely off the charts funny. Okay. Um, just brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> now, when she's 30 or 30-ish, again, depending on when exactly she um, was born in, so 1614, she bizarrely marries. Oh. Which up until now, men have not featured in any way, shape or form. And to be honest, even after she's married, they don't feature. A guy called Lucna Markham, Mm-hmm. And we don't, he, the only time he really features in the story is when they get married. We don't know what happens to him, whether he he dies young or probably it's more of a marriage of convenience. She doesn't mention him in her will when she dies. We don't think they ever lived together. And there was one court case where she came up and she was asked how long she'd been married. And she had no idea. She couldn't say, she didn't know. <laughs> um, and it's probably done for status reasons, because if you're yeah. married, it, it conveys more status than if you're single, but also you could get shielded from the law a bit. So yeah. when, if somebody brought a case against her and referred to her as a spinster, she could say, no, 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 no. no I'm no, a married I'm woman. A married woman. Thank you. And not only did this make her more, um, I guess, respectable, yeah. but also she could sort of claim that it wasn't her if they're going, oh, it's this spinster that lives on her. She's like, well, I'm not a spinster, so it can't be me. <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite a clever, clever little ploy to get out of it. But we literally, we, we hear nothing more about, about Luke and Markham after right. this. So that the the a very tiny little bit of uh, of a man popping in but like i say probably for convenience more than anything yeah. um it does also seem that there's another profession that is attributed to her in this house that she's got which is a sort of brothel now she she clearly is uh, an entrepreneur she clearly sees a niche in the market yeah. all over the place and she saw a niche for a brothel that catered to women there's tons and tons of molly ah. houses, um, brothels that cater to men. And yep. she essentially set up a male escort business. Okay. She used her house and she filled it up with soldiers and other men who were coming in looking for employment. And then women who were coming looking for lovers as well. And she described the men she provided as the sprucest fellows the town afforded. Ooh. Yeah. And later, some of them go on to do quite well in, in high society. She always found that quite entertaining. She was like, oh. ah, you used to be one of my mollies and now you're, oh. you know. That's that's interesting. That's, yeah. You know, it was a well-trodden path for women, but yeah. that, that men could do that as well. Hmm. Exactly. And the great thing about it is that she makes it so that she gets um quite well paid for this. She is paid both by the men and the women. Uh, oh, so she's essentially a pimp for the men. She's a pimp for yeah. the men. So yeah. they pay her an amount and the women pay her too. Yeah. Brilliant. And she Brilliant. even there, there are also people who want to have quite um quite dangerous affairs. So often people who are up in high places or um, quite high profile and they come to her to source them people who are going to be discreet mm-hmm. yeah um and what that later means is that if she comes up against a course a court or something she's got people in high places who can yes. vouch for her and give her a bit of leniency this is very cunning it's so cunning um there is even one case and again we're not sure about how true this is um that there was a, a woman who on her deathbed, uh, confessed that she had been unfaithful to her husband with lovers that Mary had provided. And Mary uh, or Moll had supposedly convinced the woman's lovers to send money for the maintenance of the children that may or may not have been theirs. Ah. <laughs> so, yeah, and we, we're not we're yeah. not clear how much of this has been embellished. Yeah, but it definitely adds another layer to the the, the mythology and the legendary status yeah. of this. Yeah, yeah fascinating women and i always think there's no smoke without fire so no there's there's... it does it does play into a sort of uh character trope that is kind of you know the thief but the 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 decent thief yes yeah the honest yeah kind of you know and we talked about that with dick turpin as well how he's almost got this slightly romantic view and actually he was a bit of a brute and he you know poured hot water over one guy coshed people over here over their heads and all sorts of stuff and and we have this this romantic ideal and you kind of see that a a little bit with moll as well yeah um in 1644 so we've we've fast forwarded a little bit she is recorded as being released from bethlehem hospital bedlam now, again, uh-huh. we talked about Bedlam after yeah. being supposedly cured of insanity. Now, we're not quite sure what takes her into Bedlam. There is, again, a, a theory about this and possibly apocryphal. So by this point, um, the Civil War has started. Yeah. And supposedly, and again, this might be part of this romantic ideal, supposedly she was a royalist. Um, it's said that during the Civil War, she took to being a highway robber. 
So mm-hmm. I did mention earlier there was a little bit of this. Yeah. And there's a story that goes that she was out doing a robbery and she held up the parliamentarian general by the name of Fairfax. Oh, okay, yeah. Shot his servant's horses and robbed him of 250 gold coins and possibly shot him in the arm as well. And of course, if she was a true royalist, then she would have loved this because he was parliamentarian. I mean, who yeah. knows? Who knows? So the story then goes that she was arrested for this, mm-hmm. put in prison and paid a £2,000 bribe to get her out of Newgate and into yeah. Bedminster. Right. Now, whether this is true or not, we don't quite know. It kind of, I mean, I was going to say, if if London was parliamentarian, mm. actually maybe in Bedlam is quite a safe place to maybe. be. Maybe. Better than well, Newgate. She, she was aiming, yeah, she was sort of heading for the gallows, really. And yeah. clearly she, well, if, if, if the story is to be believed, she had, yeah. again, friends in high places and was able, and clearly enough cash to go, look, I'll bung you this. And you can say, oh, no, she didn't do it. She was just mad and proper in there yeah, for a while. Yeah, Who knows? Just let the let the fuss die down. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So she was released in 1644, but it, all of that is shrouded a little bit in mystery. So we're not quite sure, even if she ever robbed General Fairfax and if that was the reason she was in there, we don't know. But the, the bribe to get out of the prison does pop up in quite a few places. So again, there might be a little bit of truth to that, but for mm-hmm. what reason she was there, TBC, it's all a bit uh, a bit misty. She dies in 1659. Now, crucially, what happens in 1660? <laughs> it's the restoration. It's the restoration of the, of the monarchy. So she never actually lives to see the king yeah. come back. So if she was a massive royalist, that's a bit sad. She didn't quite see yeah. that. Um, and she is buried, interestingly, in St. Bride's Churchyard on Fleet Street. Ah. Yeah. yeah. Um, she, there was an epitaph written about her by uh, John Milton, which mm-hmm. was engraved, engraved on a marble headstone. Now, uh, disappointingly, this was lost in the Great Fire of London, which yeah. is like seven years later. Um, but it does kind of celebrate her her uniqueness. It says, for no communion she had, nor sorted with the good or bad, that when the world shall be calcined, don't quite know what that means, and the mixed mass of humankind shall separate by that melting fire, she'll stand alone and none come nigh her. Ooh. So he's like, she's so unique that when all this happens, she's just, they're not going to know what to do with her. She's amazing. Yeah. And one story says, and again, this could be apocryphal, but who knows, that she asked to be buried face down, backside up. As like (laughs) just a last defiant gesture, which is just fantastic. Now, shortly after she died, I mean, I say shortly, literally two, three, four years, um, there's quite a few biographies that pop up about her. Yeah. And this is where we see a lot of these embellishments come in. So one of the most famous is one called The Life of Mrs. Mary Frith in 1662. And that was responsible for a lot of the information that we have about her. But uh, veracity mm. of it, mm, you know, mm. take mm-hmm. it take it with a pinch of salt. But because she'd become this sort of mythical creature, it seems like there was quite an appetite for her story. So there's yeah. about uh, probably about four or five different biographies that are that are that pop up. Um and even later in the in the late 19th century, she appears in yet another book. And I actually think she would have had a mighty chuckle at this book. It's called Lives of Twelve Bad Women, Illustrations <laughs> and Reviews of Feminine Turpitude Set Forth by Impartial Hands. And I feel like she would have loved that. Yeah, she she'd have happily strode around town carrying yeah. that book. Yeah, women um and then we should probably find out who the other 12 women were in that as well and yeah. there is a memorial to her it's a memorial park and it's on fortune street near where the theater used to be that she she first did her um okay uh, after plays um which is again just near bunhill fields uh just to the yeah. west of old street um, but sadly her grave doesn't exist because it was destroyed in the great fire um mm. in surprise churchyard i don't even know if there's any of no. the I was gonna. I was when you said that. I was trying to picture where the churchyard is, and it's sort of there's not really much. I I think I used to sing in um Bride's Hall for many many years with with my choir, and I think as you go in, you you cross underneath a building, and there's quite a big sort of flat open space. Um, and often those those churchyards tended not to be built directly on as well. So I reckon it was probably there, just by the by the door that you now go into the main the main church. Uh-huh. Uh, not, not the main church, but the main hall, which is slightly above. So it might have been there, but I have to say, I don't know exactly where it was. But yeah. that, that's where she is somewhere. Some Someone I know did some work for some brides and they gave him a little office to sit in mm. to work. And he was there for a couple of weeks and he was surrounded by shelves with shoeboxes. And he thought, shall I look in the shoeboxes or shall yes. I wait? And then, well, he did eventually, but not until he basically finished his work that he was doing. Uh, so on the last day, he looked in and confirmed what he suspected, which that they were all bones. 
Really? So maybe they have got a... So maybe Moltop versus not, in a, not, in a I always want somewhere. to say Carnal House. That's not right. Charnel, Charnel House. Charnel yeah. House is a different thing. Um, so maybe some of the bones mm. were rescued she's, after the fire. Maybe yeah. she's in a in a shoebox in an office. In a shoebox. Yeah. There we go. So that's Mall Copvers, aka yeah. Mary Frith. And um, the other thing that now springs immediately to mind is Mull Flanders and mm. the sort of story, you know. Know, novels by Daniel Defoe and people of kind yeah. of rollicking heroines who yeah. have these extraordinary lives. So presumably, but again, she, slightly romantic she's... heroines as well. You know, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and you you might kind of read them and go, oh, this is this, surely this wouldn't happen. But but clearly, she was one of Armal might be one of the inspirations. Yeah, absolutely. And I just I just think she sounds. I mean, again on that slightly romantic ideal she sounds like she would be cracking fun but she would probably be pretty bloody dangerous as well so yeah. i mean yeah, you know. stay, stay on the right side of her yeah I'm gonna suggest. walking around with her massive yeah. bull mastiff and and yeah you know where, where where did you say she lived on the north side of fleet street fleet street mm. fleet street yeah i there would be a fabulous evening in a pub with people who lived on fleet street like yeah. dr johnson oh yeah as well Oh yeah, uh, you know, up that way, and I'm sure there would be many others. Um, yeah, she's slightly pre Doctor Johnson, isn't she? She's um, the the, yeah. the century ahead, but it, it, yeah, it would yeah if you could just collect all of the really interesting people that that made that place home, yeah, or office or whatever. Yeah, um, in, in the same way that I always kind of think it'd be nice if I imagine this that when when we all go home at the end of the day and leave the Westminster Abbey to its own devices that all the statues and the monuments yeah. might kind of just clamber down and have a little mingle and a chat and a chat and, you know I know it'd be wonderful oh, isn't it? the conversations they would have I know gosh and the, the the number of people in there who you would give your eye teeth to just have a chat to with have a chat with yeah absolutely. I mean, we, we, we've talked about quite a few of them Angela Burdett Coots and and mm. Oh goodness me! Like um, I can't even think of any more now. But um, uh, Sarah Forbes, Manetta, and people like that, and you think, oh, you just, you just want to chat to them. Yeah, It'd be incredible. Yeah. So frustrating. Sorry, that went off at a tangent. <laughs> it didn't go off a tangent. <laughs> I love a tangent. So there we go. That's yeah. uh, that's it for this week. That is uh, Mol Mol Cut Purse. Or uh, there you go, fabulous. Frith. How? Yeah. Oh, so now, uh, now I know. Yeah, absolutely. So and, and thank you very much um, for uh, for suggesting for suggestion. it. Yeah, thanks, Amanda. That was a cracking one. It was good because I managed to pick it out of my list and go, oh, brilliant. So someone actually wants that one, so we'll do that. Um, so we will leave it here for this week. But uh, anything you need to let people know? Have you got any walks coming up? I obviously haven't got anything coming up for a while. It probably won't be until the not, end of the summer that I'm guiding again. But what have, uh, have you got anything that people not, can come and join you on? Um, not specifically. I'm <laughs> um, just looking ahead. No, well... Um, no, not not massively um, public ones that people can can join in, uh, particularly. So just um, yeah, plenty of plenty of stuff. Plenty. But of you will you will let us know when when you're doing some because you do do quite a few public ones, yes. don't you? So yes, yeah. absolutely. And there'll be yeah. quite a few over the summer if people are. People and we're are we're just about to restart Greenwich, which is nice. nice oh, that's a nice summer. one. Um, I tell you what, actually, there's only the one that we're going to stop because it's less nice in the summer is the underground one ah. so um if you fancy coming with me to explore and obviously i've been on the past in on the pod in the past <laughs> talking about underground stuff talking yeah about the underground um but i think i'm doing it on both the 18th and the 25th of april oh perfect so that's so if yeah you fancy either of those at what time? The underground. What time and where to 10, meet? 10.45 at Baker Street. And all the information is at walks.com. Yeah. It's what, £15 per person? 15 for adults, 10 for students or super adults of 65. Yeah. Five, five for kids. Five for kids. And it's a great walk. So if you want to come and do that, 18th and 25th, you say? 18th and 25th. Fabulous. Fabulous. Yes. And and I think a lot of people will be, you know, ramping up um to come to London ahead of the coronation, which is, oh goodness, less than a month away. I know. Which it's is very exciting. exciting. Um, so we will what I think what we're planning to do is a couple of podcasts linked to 
bits around the coronation, not not necessarily the coronation itself, because that's yeah. I mean, well, I don't know. Well, let us know yeah, if you should. want us to do um, an episode explaining what you're going to see in all the different bits of the coronation, because often you know these things are they're they're so monumental. They've been going for so long, and sometimes you watch them, but you don't know what's happening. So, I mean, I don't know if if anyone wants that let us know but we were thinking maybe we'll look at a bit of the jewels we might look at some of the um the historic bits like the um Liber regalis which is the the book that, that governs it all so um let us know if you would like a, a sort of blow by blow of what to expect when you're when the coronation is happening of you know looking at things and going ah oh, that is the dot 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 that was used for dot 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 let us know because we're very happy to do that this is stuff that we talk about all the time we'll be are you i guess you're not working on the day not on the day no, no. Um, so we will be watching yeah. we might we could potentially do some sort of live instagramming <gasps> from you know where like stories where we're chatting about um about what you're watching we could possibly do that but if you want to, yeah. us to do an entire episode of what to expect then then let us know because we can definitely do that yeah and it's it's intriguing the way um things are being announced hmm. uh, a little bit but so it's it's clearly going to be shorter than the queen's was yeah. that much is is definitely uh, which is sure. a departure of of quite monumental importance because they they don't normally mess with the no the so they, ceremony, do they? it's a question of what are they cutting out mm. uh but presumably Nothing. presumably none of the bits that make it into the highlights when yes. you see the video <laughs> of the queen's coronation nobody watches five hours of no of that because to be fair the actual ceremony takes two and a half yeah, so there must we, be we've only ever really seen the highlights, so there's got to be a lot of faffing, isn't there? Take out all the faffing, do it in 20 minutes. Didn't they pause for sandwiches? I think they nipped out the back halfway and... No, they them. didn't. I think they did with the Queen. Really? Didn't they? Yes, I think, I think so. Yeah, that's the kind of thing you would know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, let us know. We might, what we could potentially do is put up a little thing on the Instagram. You can vote on, on whether you'd like that or not. But um, yeah. there's a or lot we, we might can talk do about. Some randomly vaguely related to the coronation but mm. offered a tangent yeah that's, that's our that's our vibe isn't it but for this week uh thank you all so much for coming and listening um well, thank you alex i was gonna say for for fabulous cut purse mole yeah oh, she's, she's great i really like her i really yeah. like her so um uh yeah we will see you next week for something else we haven't decided what yet um but we'll see you then have a lovely week everybody take care Bye. See you then. Bye. Bye.